Uh, we come to uh, the teaching portion of our service. Um, you would see just on the page next over, you'll see the passage for this morning. We are plugging our way through the book of Romans, the last section of the book of Romans, as we spent time going through uh, back and forth between Genesis and Romans, and we took a brief break for our vision series. But now it is full steam ahead here until Advent. Um, and as Adam commented last week, uh, which he said really, really well, uh, I just I want to set us up in this way: is that this is a the Book of Romans has been a very important book to uh, a lot of Christians all over the world, um, and particularly our historical um, branch uh, that we are a part of here, and that's for many reasons. Um, I can't decide whether or not, if, you're, if you grew up in the PCA, whether it's cliche or not to preach through the book of Romans. I feel like I've been in it more often than anyone else. But when Will was here, he said he had never heard like um, someone actually go through the book of Romans. So I don't know where you're coming from. But we like it because it, it, it is long and it is very dense. Um, it has very thorough doctrinal treatment about especially... Um, what the good news is, what is the gospel, what has Christ done for us, um, and how we can be in right relationship with God. So there is a lot of, of rich, rich um, doctrine and theology that we can study, particularly in a vertical aspect of how we can live as individuals in a right relationship with God. But there is this other aspect to this book, um, the book of Romans, that is uh, very, very important, um, that... I've heard more and more recently kind of bring out that there is all from the beginning, there is a horizontal emphasis to this whole book, that just as much as it is teaching us how to live and to become in right relationship with God, it has at least equally so this other focus or of agenda and how we can live together as a community and as a community of people. And this is going to come out more explicitly as we hit this passage uh, in Romans 12 this morning, but I just want you to keep that in mind um, as, we, as we dive in here. You'll see I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 9 to 16. If you have an um, actual Bible in front of you, you might see that there is, this is a part of one big thought, a list of things that Paul is saying, and that I'm cutting it off kind of sharply after verse 16. And that's because the verses afterwards are particularly going to be about returning evil with good and loving our enemies. And so I'm going to break that off and treat it as its own section. So, And also saying that in case there's somebody in your life that has done you wrong and you don't want to deal with that yet, um, that's what we're going to deal with tomorrow. So the ball is in your court. Uh, let's go before the Lord's word and read, starting in Romans 12:9. This is God's word. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, we humbly ask that you would work through your word this morning, that you would um, teach your truth, that you would use the words that I say um, and the words that we all hear together to accomplish your purposes, um, that you would take even a weak man who has to teach on these things uh, that are so difficult and who lives them so imperfectly, that your good news that only comes from Jesus would come through. And so we put again this in your hands and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you a section out of a book I read recently um, in order to kick us off. And this is, I went back and forth about, um, it's a little bit long. It's not, it's only two paragraphs, so it's not that long. But I don't want to tire you out too well, but this is by Eugene Peterson. And I cannot say it as well as, as he can say it, for one thing. And if I cut it off, then it is going to lose largely the effect of what he's trying to say. Um, so I'm going to read. This is two paragraphs, about a page and a half. So if you can just hang in there. Um, this is really, really good um, way to jump into what we're going to look at this morning. So he says this. He talks about when he gets tired of um, living the life of faith. He likes to go down, or he used to when he was alive, go down to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and watch the Orioles play baseball. And he says this. For a couple of hours, I'm in a world that is defined by exactly measured lines and precise geometric patterns. Every motion on the playing field is graceful and poised. Sloppy behavior is not tolerated. Complex physical feats are carried out with immense skill. Errors are instantly detected and their consequences immediately um, experienced. Rule infractions are punished directly. Unruly conduct is banished. The person who refuses to play by the rules is ejected. Outstanding performance is recognized and applauded on the spot. While the game is being played, people of widely divergent temperaments, moral values, religious commitments, and cultural backgrounds agree on a goal and the means for pursuing it. When the game is over, everyone knows who won and who lost. It is a world from which all uncertainty is banished, a world in which everything is clear and obvious. Afterward, the entire experience is summarized in the starkly unambiguous vocabulary of numbers exact to the third decimal point. Here's the next paragraph. The world to which I return when the game is over contains all the elements that were visible in the stadium, elegance and sloppiness, grace and unruliness, victory and defeat, diversity and unity, reward and punishment, boundary and risk, indolence and excellence, but with a significant difference. Instead of being sharply distinguished, they are hopelessly muddled. What is going on at any particular time is almost never exactly clear. None of the lines are precise. The boundaries are not clear. Goals are not agreed upon. Means are in constant dispute. When I leave the world of brightly lit geometric patterns, I pick my way through ink blots, trying to discern the significance of the shapes with all the help from Rochlock that I can get. My digital wristwatch, for all its technological accuracy, never tells me whether I am at the beginning or in the middle or near the end of an experience. At the end of the day, or the week, or the year, there is no agreement on who is won and who is lost. I think that is very well said, and I think that is an experience that we likely know a little bit about um, here, especially when it comes to dealing with each other in community. 
that when we approach the Christian life and we approach our life together, there are a lot of things that are clear. There are a lot of things that we have defined what we believe and that are true, that we're given in Scripture and that we hold fast to unmovingly. But then there are all these other things that come out of our life together, that people are different. They have different backgrounds. They make different decisions. They have different emphases. Um, They have different values. And those even exist in this room. And what happens is in our community life together, um, it can feel like the rules have just faded away. And what we have is a lot of ambiguity. And it is difficult to know what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. Or even to assess, was it right or wrong, that what actually was done or what was said. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Romans um, in this passage that we just read? And I think it has everything to do. And that is when we unpack the book of Romans, what Paul has been about, there have been two groups that he has been talking about a lot. And those are the groups of the Jews and the Gentile. So he is writing to a church in Rome that have two different uh, people groups, converts from two different people groups who are trying to get along. And they have different ways of doing things. They have different ethnicities. There are political difficulties. Um, The Jewish community was, for various reasons, um, expelled from Rome on multiple occasions and labeled as troublemakers. And those things permeated even into the church, the community. When we get into Romans chapter 14, it's very interesting that the thing that Paul brings out is that um, they can't get along on what food laws to follow. And that some would not eat meat, some would eat meat. And he has this particular lengthy appeal that different groups of people who eat differently would be able to get along together in one community. And we just saw what um, Adam preached on last week, that even we get down granular in this community, that there are different gifts within the body. Even the way each person serves and lives out their life of faith is somewhat differently, different, because each person is granted different gifts. So Paul is writing into this situation that we have to keep in mind as we study. And it is, it is a difficult thing here for us too. Um, we might think that one of the messages of the greatness of America is that it is a cultural melting pot of where people have been received from all over and become uh, one, one people pursuing a common end. And the more we do life together, the more we realize things that that is, that is much more of a dream than it is actually a reality. And it is much easier said than done. And that when you have so many cultures put together in the same place, then you have problems of representation about who is in power and who is not about cultural appropriation, how to give respect and how to live together with people of different cultures, it is more messy and it is not so straightforward as just everybody live in the same place and do the same thing and get along. And we, I looked this up. Let's think about just the church. If you had to wager a guess how many churches alone are in Birmingham, it is, think about enough, what would you say in your head? There are over 1,300 churches in just Birmingham alone in this city. There are 12, even in just our denomination, in the city, in the PCA, not including Hoover, not including Gardendale, not including Irondale. And they all have their own personality. 
They all have their own giftings. They all have slightly different ways of doing church. And we zoom even down further into Red Mountain. We are all different as well. And so we, in a similar way, um, we are dealing with some of these things that Paul was dealing with uh, when he gave um, us this passage. And that is we're often left with the questions, particularly of, of Christians, what do we actually have in common with all of, the di- all of the diversity? What is the nugget that no matter who we are as Christians, we all have that we share? And what is authentic, an authentic of expression of Christianity um, along with all of the, the diversity that we see around us? And so Paul gives us this list. And this is a list about love about genuine love as the primary thing. And we're going to unpack each of these things um, as we go. But here's how I want to go through and unpack this. I really have two points. I have a third point that's more of a conclusion than it is a point. Um, First, we're going to look at what prevents, uh, Paul shows us prevents um, this kind of love from happening, what makes it difficult to live together. Um, And thus, we're going to see that Christ has destroyed all form of human standards. Second, we're going to look at the positive end of what he has given, and that's Christ has actually paved the way for new life. So Christ has destroyed human standards, and then Christ has paved the way for new life. So let's look at this. If you'll look at your text, um, there's a theme I want to draw out. Um, of human standards we see that actually get in the way and make life together more difficult. Um, if you have a Bible, I'll welcome you to open it because I'm going to zoom out from just, just our passage, but um, I will let you know as well. So look here in your passage in Romans 12 verse 16. Then you see it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And then look at this phrase, never be wise in your own sight. And then if we remember back from Romans 12, 3, what Adam preached on last week, we remember that Paul said, For um, grace was given, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We see the same theme. If we back all the way up to eleven twenty five, then he says he's giving a rationale for something, and he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. So there's a theme here that Paul has in mind when he, is, when he is giving these instructions, and that is this idea of being wise in your own sight. And I want to label this self-righteousness. That is specifically what he's talking about. And self-righteousness is this. We might think of it often as, um, as when we view ourselves to actually be keeping um, God's law or being perfectly right in and of ourselves. And it could be that. But I think anybody who is accurately looking at God's law, what it actually requires, would never make that claim. It would be so far above that it would be ridiculous to think that we are actually so righteous and holy as God is. And so we do something else. What self-righteousness means, um, more so than a self-assessment of being righteous, is that we actually make our own standard of what righteousness is. We are righteous according to self. And the standard of what we tend to hold everybody else to, even of ourselves, tend to be, tends to be things in us that we are already good at, that we already like, and that we already value. 
and it is skewed from the standard of what God actually calls us to. And this can look like all kinds of things. We see in here just these general categories of being wise in your own sight, of haughtiness, um, perhaps of outdoing one another to show ourselves honor, um, these things in the passage. But as we just think about these things, um, just think about yourself and your own self-made rules. And if we can evaluate what frustrates you and other people um, that you really dislike and to think of other people as low or beneath. They could be our causes. You know, if we, um, we have our own things that we really uh, like, that we get behind, and we see other people that they don't have those same causes. And so they clearly, they're not enlightened to the real things that we need to care about. And so that's a way that we are righteous, and we are more righteous than this person. I had a friend, I was laughing recently, that he got disowned from a friendship um, because he ate meat. Um, and I, um, maybe righteously or not, I texted him Romans chapter fourteen one, which talks about one person eating meat and one person not eating meat and them looking down on each other. Um, but these are ways of assessing. They might be good things and they might be good decisions. We should care about what we eat. We should care about fair treatment of animals and all those kinds of things. But there's a way of using those to elevate ourselves above other people. Um, they could even be different things like that in the church that like that we really think that outreach is the thing that we need to do or we really think that um, care for the body is the thing we need to do. Uh, we like how conflict is solved. If we deal with people in this way, that is good. It is more so good than this way. There are all kinds of assessments that we deem about each other as being right and as being holy and where others are different. There are different giftings, different lifestyle choices, different personalities that we will judge other people according to. That if they are like us, they are right. If they are not like us, they are wrong. And these things cause divisions between us. They get in the way of genuine love. That's the individual flavor. There's also a group flavor, and that is in the form of factions. And we know this, that is when groups mutually reinforce these kinds of rules and they're not just personal. And this is when one of the difficulties when church and a political position get mixed together as if they are the same thing, there is a way we can reinforce to people other rules other than what God has given us and keeping some on the inside and some on the outside. They can even, uh, in a more comical, lighthearted example, they can um, be in terms of dress. Um, I remember getting here um, with my wife and I. We noticed there are two groups. There are those that wear Lululemon yoga pants and love Lululemon yoga pants. And there are those that make fun of people because everybody has to wear Lululemon yoga pants, even though everybody wants to wear Lululemon yoga pants. (laughs) That is true. Um, But there are these social groups of what is right, um, what is acceptable, and what is fit, by which we determine who is on the inside and outside. We know this happens ethnically, tragically. This happens in social classes, tragically, um, all kinds of ways. And why do we do this? And that's in the absence of clarity, when we have a hard time judging what is right and what is wrong, it feels safer to make up our own rules and to draw lines to bring clarity where there is not, to enforce who is in and who is out. Because when we don't do this, 
what it feels like is that we are just lost in an ocean of people. There is no way we can look at ourselves to say that we fit and that we belong and we want to belong. We all want to belong and we want to fit. But what Paul is showing here, he is, he is preaching something that is exactly the opposite to that. All of these human standards, they get in the way. And the gospel that he has been preaching all along has been this, that Christ died for the ungodly, that Christ alone fulfilled the law of God and became right and gave his righteousness to those that need it as a gift, regardless of anything about whoever he gives it to. And in fact, if we back up in this and we look at the context a little bit um, further back, back into chapter 11, before he gives these commands, he is talking about this ethnic difference between Jews and Gentiles. And if you can, um, I'm not going to read it, but if you look at verses 28 through 32, basically he's saying this, for a time... Israel was a chosen people, and the Gentiles um, were disobedient. They were not following God's law. And then once Christ came, it flipped. That many Gentiles heard the good news and accepted it, and many of the Israelites did not. But what happens to both of those is that in both circumstances, God uses the disobedience to proclaim His mercy to those that need it. That is the point to both groups. Not that one is right over the other because of something just innate in them, but that the thing that makes right is only Christ's mercy. Though Christ has destroyed in his death on the cross and his payment for sin and his resurrection any kind of human standard by which we may um, judge one person over another as to be more right in the sight of God outside of his mercy. Now, we still have to make decisions. We still have to use wisdom. Uh, There are all kinds of things we have to live out in the life of faith and decide. But when it comes to being righteous, to being right before God, who is included in his people, Christ has destroyed in the cross all human standards as a way of evaluating. That's the first point. Christ has destroyed human standards. But what then? I want to lead in this with um, an illustration. So I like um, nature documentaries like Planet Earth and that kind of thing. There's one on Netflix called Our Planet, um, which has a really neat episode um, or a section in it on Chernobyl. If you're familiar with that, in 1986, then a nuclear power plant um, in northern Ukraine um, exploded and caused um, spilled radioactive material everywhere in that area is uninhabitable. They had to evacuate 100,000 people. Um, And it's been a ghost town ever since. But they had cameras going in there. Um, This is just three decades later. This is 1986. So after that explosion, after everything there was wiped out, we used to be a hustling, bustling city. Now, there is so much biodiversity in that area now that humans and roads and buildings um, are uninhabited, that it rivals that, if not more, of the most wild, remote parts of Russia. Like in three days, there is just a new type of life that, after what was there been wiped out, has grown up. That has been much less predictable, but it is beautiful and it is diverse. I don't know how that works. 
I was saying this to Lauren, and I don't know how the animals can survive and not humans, but that's the case. It is really a beautiful and amazing thing. So, and here's why I bring that up. This is a metaphor for what it's like when Christ destroys human standards and he paves the way for new life and a different kind of life to grow up. And when we get that, then these things that are listed here, they become much less about being righteous. They become less of a list that we have to keep in order to maintain a status with God because that only comes through God's mercy. But what that does is this gives us a vision of a different community that is beautiful and that is good, that we will never keep and make right on our own, but we are given to love and we are given to live into by the Spirit. So as I read through things, here's the mental thing I want us to have in our heads. Like the camera that is zooming in um, around Chernobyl, looking at all the trees and the animals and stuff, and just like you're just a spectator looking around at what this life is like. I'm going to read through each one of these items that we're called to in the passage, and I want us to have the same perspective. And just imagine less about yourself, but this about a community, what this community would be like. Starting here in verse 9, let your love be genuine. That's without play acting. That the love is actually can be depended on from any person. To pour what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That is a singularity of focus. A unity um, of keeping the main thing the main thing. Love one another with brotherly or sisterly affections. It could be translated. Outdoing one another and showing honor. That is being others more worried about your reputation than about their own. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent, serving the Lord. There's a common purpose working together, rejoicing in hope. Even this part, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. This is the kind of life together that is immovable regardless of circumstance. There is a slow and steady plodding forward, no matter what, in one direction. Um, Contributing to the needs of of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. Of those who are in need, blessing those who persecute us, blessing and not cursing them. So arguments, conflict are stopped on the spot. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. No matter what part of life we're in, there is a community of love, living in harmony, not being haughty, but associating with the lowly, like class is evaporated. There is only one kind of person, nobody being wise in their own sight. Motives are pure. And they are good. That is a good community. That is a community that I would guess we all would love to be a part of. And for that to be a part of our community. This is a vision of new life that in light of what Christ has done, that he has given. That when human standards are erased, when we are all united in God's mercy, then there is a genuine love that is there and able to grow up where it was not before. These are given to us to delight in. These are the marks, and there's a way we can look at these even to evaluate ourselves, to is this um, really the the life that uh, characterizes our own? But in that, this is much more of a longing of the goodness of what Christ has offered because of what he has done for community. They're here to encourage us to meditate on ourselves. They're here to encourage us together to meditate on them. And I want to say a special word here to the elders before I move on to the conclusion. It is very easy when being 
taking care of a group of people to get caught up in all kinds of things, all kinds of decisions, and to get sidetracked. But the main thing we are given here in our community is that Christ has died and Christ has extended mercy to those who needed mercy. He has erased human standards. And so the command to us above anything else is regardless what a person is like, to let your love be genuine. To let your love be genuine. Let these characteristics grow. To look to each other in care. To rejoice with those who rejoice. To weep with those who weep. This is the calling and this is the good vision of the Christian community that we have been given. I say this and I move here to close with this. If we do this, two things will happen. First, you'll realize how impossible this actually is to live out um, to a T. Uh, it, is, it is for humans in our um, side of glory, it is absolutely impossible on the one hand. Two, it will lead you to grief. And it will lead me to grief at times. Because people disappoint each other. Love is often not genuine. Uh, we are often haughty. And we hold that over people. We argue about all kinds of things. That if we open our hearts to love this vision of community, there will be many times it will be hurtful and it will be disappointing. So the question is, how do we continue to do it? How do we continue to pursue others in a genuine love rather than drawing lines to keep them out? And that is this. We have to go back and remember what this entire story is all about. I just I pulled some excerpts out of Romans to show where we have been so far, to show how we arrived at this place, to what God is up to, that will show that this is not a book that is about a dispassionate, systematic theology where we get all of our ducks in a row and it's a math problem that everything is going to work out. There's a lot of good, important stuff that we have here in Romans, but there is a personality behind it that is key. It starts in Romans 1-7 to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Romans 5-5, and our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5-8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who will separate us in Romans 8-35 from the love of Christ? Romans 8.37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 8.39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what this story has been about all along. And all the particulars of what Paul has been showing about what the good news means is that this is a personal gospel of a God who out of love moved towards his people when they were lost. This is a story of a God out of love who is in pursuit of his people constantly. This is a story of love that we were given from Jesus. And th- this is the issue for us. If we try to live this out, if we try to love on our own, on our own um, strength, it is like taking a water hose and shaking it over your garden and trying to get water to come out so that it will water it. You have to go back to the source. And there is only one source of this kind of love, is to know that exactly where you are, with your personality, with the circumstances that you are in, with your giftings, 
with your history, what you have done, what you have left undone, with your relationships, where they are broken or where they are great. That God is in pursuit of you out of love. And so the question we have to ask ourselves at the end is not just in a broad idea, but do you know deep down in all of those places that God loves you? That he is fully in pursuit of you, of wooing you and drawing you to himself. What he wants is to be with you. That is what the good news of the gospel is all about. And so what I want in this and the effect to encourage us and primarily that we would as a community, we would delight in this kind of community. That we would look at ourselves, we would evaluate our love, evaluate what we're about, where we hold people at a distance, where we draw lines, all those things. And we would long for this kind of community. But to do that, I want to encourage all of us together to go back to the source. What is this all about? And particularly, what has Christ done for you? What is his attitude towards you? And what is his business with you? And that is the key. That is the key that unlocks all of these things, is the fuel that allows us to move forward and pursue and dream all the more. And this obviously is something that we need help from the Spirit to help us do. So let's stop there and let's pray that he would... um, that he would work in us in this way. Your Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this vision of good news that you have given us. Um, Thank you for the delight and hope that you provided in Jesus. We pray that through the Spirit that you would indeed, all the more as you always have, impress upon us the love that you have for us, that it would melt the hardness in our hearts towards you, And it would melt the hardness in our hearts towards other people. And that you would free us to live the life that you have always intended. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.